While you're turning to Mark chapter 5 in your Bibles, uh, I want to let you know, I'm, for those who might not know, I'm the Daryl that was talked about earlier about uh, the uh, Fall Fest. You can see me afterwards for that. Mark chapter 5, it will be reading from verses 1 through 20. It is in your bulletins as well if you wanted to follow along that way. Our pastor, Dr. Wood, is on vacation this week, and uh, oftentimes when he's not filling the pulpit, one of our ruling elders, Al Taglieri, fills the pulpit, and he will be here, and I thank you, Al, for bringing God's word to us. Here in Mark chapter 5, we read, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains he had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you and we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been asking saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out of the unclean spirit, entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see Jesus and observe the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. The reading of God's word. At this time, children's worship, for those whose parents would allow, uh, from ages three to first grade, uh, can meet in the back, meet me in the back, and we'll have our worship. Al, thank you. 
Good morning. I don't know about you, but I don't trust people who can draw. They seem kind of sketchy. Likewise, I don't trust people with graph paper. They're always plotting. Well, let's be honest. It's hard to trust just about anyone. Because when I trust, I open myself up to hurt. And who wants that? And yet we yearn for someone we can trust. We yearn for a heart that loves us, despite our character flaws and our daily sin. We long for someone to stand by us when the chips are down and when we're at our worst. The scripture tells us it is Jesus. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And we have a hymn called Simply Trusting Every Day. Trusting as the moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting him, whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all. Is Jesus the one we can trust? I mean, trust usually follows getting to know someone. How can we get to know Jesus when he's not around here in the flesh anymore? I mean, it would be great if we could follow him around, but those days are gone. And there's a big issue we need to get past. If Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, then he is sovereign over all creation. How can we trust him with all the pain and evil in this world, especially when all too often we experience them? Things like broken families, estranged adult children, children who have left the faith, aging, disease, the death of a loved one, especially someone young with their whole life ahead of them in our own mortality. You don't have to go looking for these troubles. They'll find you. And so we wonder, is he good? Can he be trusted? Well, of course he's good and can be trusted. That's the sermon title. I can trust Jesus. But let's be honest, it's hard. When life takes us to places we don't want to go, sometimes we have trust issues. Fortunately, we have the inspired the inerrant, the infallible, and the authoritative word of God to reassure our faith and to strengthen our trust in Jesus. You see, it's the scriptures and the scriptures alone that enable us to know and trust Jesus. Now, you may ask yourself, why should I trust the scriptures? There's a lot of holy books out there. Why the Bible? Why the Bible alone? Well, it all starts with Jesus. If he rose from the dead on his own power, then everything he said is truth. And he said this in John 16, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so Jesus provides the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers and who enables us to understand what was written. But God does even more. He has built wonders into the scriptures. And we find two of them in Mark 5. Here's the first wonder. And yeah, it's a chiasm. In the first level, we have comings and goings. And in the second level, we see the state of the man before and after Jesus. The third level has reactions to Jesus. The fourth level deals with legion. And in the center of the chiasm, Jesus. And the second wonder is, you guessed it, another chiasm. We see requests in the outer level. 
The next level has touching. We see the disciples in the third level, and in the center, Jesus. And so Jesus is the center of each chiasm, and that's majestic. In Mark 4, Jesus and the disciples are in a boat during a great storm, and the disciples panic, we're going to drown! And Jesus rebukes the storm, and the disciples ask, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this? It is Jesus, the sovereign over all creation. Today in Mark 5, we learn that Jesus is in control of much more than the wind and the waves. And so our title for today is, I Can Trust Jesus. And I have three points. I can trust Jesus who controls the spiritual world, who controls disease, and who controls life and death. Let's pray. Lord, we do acknowledge that you are the sovereign over all things, and we confess that there are times that we question your plan and have trouble trusting in that plan. But your plan is perfect. Will you strengthen us today, Lord? Will you speak to each of our hearts so that as we leave here today, we are trusting you more? We ask that through your name. Amen. Well, our first point then is, I can trust Jesus who controls the spiritual world. It is right to obey God's commands, but God does not coerce us. He created men and angels as free moral beings who can choose what to believe and how to act. And I think this goes to the heart of why we see so much evil in the world. How often have we cried out, God, how can you let these things happen? And we expect him to intervene immediately in order to prevent the wrong before it even happens. But that would make us puppets. Our God desires free moral beings who choose to love and obey him of their own free will. And you can't force that. And so if you allow freedom of action, which God does, you end up with people and angels who can choose to violate God's commands. Violations that result in evil against others, as in our first story. Let's read verses 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the garrisons. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He landed at Gerasenes a city that was part of the Decapolis, where Greek and Roman soldiers settled, along with Jews attracted to the Greek lifestyle. Jesus makes a special trip through a great storm to the eastern side of the Galilee for this man. And as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, the man comes to him. Now Mark tells us that this man had an unclean spirit, a demon, a fallen angel. And we are again confronted with the question, are the scriptures true? It's an important question. How can I trust Jesus if I can't trust his word? You see, Mark says that it happened in Gerasenes, but Matthew places the story near Gadarens, which was a different city altogether. So come on, Al. How can anyone be expected to believe in the scriptures if the authors don't even know where they are? Many say that this passage proves the scriptures are filled with error. But these two cities, Gerasenes and Gadarens, were next to each other with no clearly defined border. 
Indeed, there's only one place along this shore where pigs could run down a steep bank and fall into the, sh to the sea, and it's between these two cities. And so we reject this charge of error. But what about demons? You, you know, it's quaint, but belief in angels is sort of okay today. But demons? No one believes that. You'd have to be a rube from the 18th century to believe in demons. Huh, well, it's sort of okay to believe in angels, but not in fallen angels. It's sort of okay to posit that there are spiritual beings looking out for us, but not for spiritual beings seeking to do us harm. And again, we are told that the scriptures are in error. We're told that this man was not the victim of demon possession, but that he had a mental illness. And that since mental illness wasn't understood in those days, it was attributed to demonic forces. But Jesus does not ask other illnesses for their name. And according to the scriptures, Jesus laid down his life and he took it up again by his own power. And so if Jesus believed and acted as if this man was possessed, we can too, despite the world's mockery. Three and four. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. We don't know a lot about this man. Was he a Jew or a Gentile? The scriptures don't say. Did he worship the false gods of the Greeks and Romans? Was he so fervent in that worship that he opened himself up to demonic possession? Did he start with a Ouija board, tarot cards, astrology? The scriptures don't say, but the scriptures do tell us that Satan exists and that he prowls around looking for souls to devour. The scriptures also teach that outside of Christ, we are in Satan's kingdom. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This man was more than just a run-of-the-mill member of the kingdom of darkness. An unclean spirit took possession of the man. He dwelt among the tombs, so he was ceremonially unclean. He was more comfortable with the dead than the living, and he was a violent man. If this guy had just roamed the countryside, people would have avoided him and left him alone. But he was a threat, and so they tried to bind him. The demonic strength that allowed him to break those chains was the very same strength that kept him bound to Satan. Verse 5, constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. He was self-aware of his situation. A power far greater than himself had trapped him with no means of escape, and so he screamed night and day, and he tried to kill himself. The scriptures are painting a picture of a man in agony. Somehow, by not having a sober spirit, this man made an evil choice to open himself to possession, and the unclean spirit made an evil choice to possess him. This man needed rescuing from the kingdom of Satan. Fortunately for him, Jesus marked him as one of his own. And he, 
as Almighty God decided to redeem those evil choices. Six through eight. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Well, what happened first? Once again, we hear charges of errors. Verse 2, immediately the man met him. Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance. So which is it? Did he meet Jesus at the boat, or did he see Jesus from a distance? Well, I think verse 2 refers to the overall story, while verse 6 gives us more specifics. And so I don't see a conflict between those verses. I think the more interesting question is who initiated this man's salvation? Did the man run to Jesus on his own accord, or did the man hear Jesus call? And his response was to run to him. He saw Jesus in the distance. Now, this man did not know Jesus from Adam. They didn't have nightly televised news of the latest miracles performed by the carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was not on the front page of People magazine, sold down at the corner news stall. If the evil spirit knew that it was Jesus in the distance, he'd have forced his client higher into the mountains. But Jesus had determined to rescue this man. And it started back in Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Jesus had one purpose in going to the other side, and it was to redeem this one man. And as soon as they arrived, he called the man. So verse 8 says, for he had been saying, that indicates to me that Jesus called first. He heard Jesus' voice. And he came at a run, despite the blackness of his soul. The past mattered not. The demonic chains were nothing. He heard the call. No power on earth could prevent him from answering the master's call. And make no mistake, Jesus sought this man out. He initiated this man's salvation, and he completed it. How about you? Maybe you've made poor choices in the past. Maybe you're tormented by lust, drugs, alcohol, or greed. When Jesus calls, you can come despite the past. You can come to Jesus despite the chains that bind you. You can trust him to forgive and set you free. The first thing this man did after being called was to bow down and worship. Now, he's still possessed. Imagine the incongruity of bowing down in worship while you hear your voice call out a challenge to Jesus. See, Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to leave, but the unclean spirit was defiant at first. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Why are you here? This one is mine. He gave himself to me willingly. Go away and leave us alone. And he tries to guilt Jesus. He says, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Well, isn't that ironic? This spirit was tormenting that poor man for years. It didn't belong inside the man. Calling it out was not a torment. The demon makes a false accusation intended to prevent Jesus from carrying out his rescue. But Jesus 
controls the spiritual world. 9 through 13. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for, <clears throat> for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. I don't have to be afraid of the power of darkness because Jesus controls the spiritual world. I mean, first note the kindness that Jesus shows these fallen angels. He asked their name. He didn't have to do that. He could have just said, be gone. But he treats the fallen angels with dignity. And notice the answer. Their name is Legion, and it's capitalized. They've taken a last name. But the angels were created as individual angels. They are part of a company of angels. They are not blood-related. They are unique beings created individually. They are not a family. But they're so jealous of mankind that they've taken a last name for themselves. They're so jealous they'll do anything to hang on to this body. You see, even the demons don't want to be in hell. And they beg Jesus, don't send us out of the country, which I assume means back into hell. So they try to pull a fast one on Jesus. Send us into those pigs. There's no doubt that those pigs would have been a safe harbor until the next guy came along. Well, the joke was on them. Note, they had to have Jesus' permission because he's the one in control. Even the demons obey him. Now, the pigs had more sense than some people. They immediately kill themselves rather than be possessed, and the fallen angels are sent out of the country. We don't have to be afraid of the powers of darkness, but darkened men are afraid of the powers of righteousness. 14. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. Choices. When Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples became very much afraid. But it was a fear that led to faith. The people of this region saw the power of Jesus, and they too became afraid. But they saw Jesus as a threat to their comfortable lifestyle. And if we can be honest for a minute, who wouldn't be upset at the loss of all that bacon? And so rather than choose faith, they chose darkness and like the demons, they beg Jesus to go away. And he does. 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. 
And everyone was amazed. Well, how about that? The people begged Jesus to go away, but the redeemed man begs Jesus to take him along. But, I, but Jesus wasn't finished with the people of this region. Isaiah spoke of it in Isaiah 9. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The people did see a great light, and they scurried away. It takes time to build trust, and so Jesus sends one of their own to report on what great things the Lord had done. Had to be a disappointment. Who wouldn't want to hang out with Jesus in a boat? But my story may not go the way I want it to go. We must heed the Lord's direction and perform the tasks assigned to us. Jesus assigned this man to go back into darkness as a light, and he could, and he could do it without fear. He could tell his story of deliverance from darkness so that the people could learn to trust Jesus. Can you? Can you speak of Jesus to those living in darkness still? You know, the Lord still sends people into darkness. Last year, there he is. Last year, uh, celebrity tattoo artist Kat Von D publicly got rid of all of her occult items, including things like witchcraft books and tarot cards. She was just baptized this year, <clears throat> and the church was filled to the brim with her occult friends. Praise God. He is still rescuing people from the oppressive grip of Satan. Well, sometimes disease causes the oppression we live with. And that brings us to our next point. I can trust Jesus who controls disease. Take a look at 25 through 28. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. This problem affected her entire life. She was ceremonially unclean according to the Mosaic law. For 12 years, she couldn't go to the temple. For 12 years, no one could touch her. She was completely isolated from the rest of her community, and she did endure much at the hands of physicians. Here's a sample cure. Dig seven pits, burn in them some branches not yet four years old. And then let the woman, carrying a cup of wine in her hand, come up to each pit in succession, sit down by the side of it, and each time let the words be repeated, be free from thy sickness. Anyone here want to give that a try? And she was getting worse. In the midst of her desperation, she hears about Jesus and she finds hope. She didn't know Jesus, but she's heard the stories. Now, in all those other healings, people either approach Jesus and ask, or he sees a need and he heals. But this humble woman believes just touching his cloak will heal her. Perhaps she thought he wouldn't want to touch her because of her uncleanness. Perhaps after 12 years of isolation, she thought herself unworthy of his attention. We're not told. 
But whatever the reason, her faith in Jesus was so strong that she believed the touch of his cloak would heal her. I think it took a lot of courage to attempt that touch. But despite her fear, she comes to Jesus and places her trust in him. 29 through 33. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed from her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you? And you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, if Jesus was just a man, a vessel for magical power, we would understand Jesus' question as a question seeking an answer. And that's what the disciples thought. But if we understand that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, then his question takes on a different character altogether. See, I think he knew all along what was going to happen. All things, even disease and healing processes, are under his control. Jesus asked this question to bring about a public confession of faith, and it does. She comes forth. She falls down before him in worship, just like the demoniac, and she confesses her whole story. And I think this brings up a deeper question. Why did this woman suffer in the first place? This was not the result of a demon making a choice or a man making a choice to open himself up to a demon. Why do all of us suffer from disease? Why in this good world under the care of a good God do so many people suffer? How can we trust in a God who allows these things to happen? Well, too often, I believe that history started with my birth, but it didn't. It started long ago with Adam and Eve and a fruit that resulted in a curse. We were watching this show called uh, 1883, and the mom tells a teenage daughter, I wish I could see the world through your eyes. Eyes that saw the world as a fun adventure. But then tragedy strikes the daughter and she begins to see the world through her mother's eyes. Eyes that see pain, trouble, and disappointment. What eyes do you use to view the curse? Do you see a vengeful God, angry that we broke his commands? Or do you see a merciful God who uses the curse to draw men to himself? Do you see the curse as a constant reminder and a prod that we need to reach out to him? All disease is under his control. And so when ill health strikes, God can not only heal it, but he permitted it as well. And I think he does so for several reasons. One is to keep us humble. Two, to provide an opportunity for others to show mercy. Three, to keep us dependent upon him. Four, to show us there is a better world to come. And five, to usher us into that better world. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And so we can trust God, even though disease is under his control. It's part of his plan. It serves his purpose. And we can come to Jesus for healing. Might not be able to reach out to that cloak, but we can reach out to him in prayer. And if it's in his plan, he will heal us, but he may not. Remember, 
He is in control over life and death. And that's our last point. I can trust Jesus who controls life and death. Now, this last story is broken into two parts. Let's take a look at 21 through 24. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Jairus, as a synagogue official, I think we can assume that he knew the scriptures and that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And notice what he does. He comes up to Jesus and he falls down in worship, just like the woman and just like the demon-possessed man. He has heard the things that Jesus, the Word of God, has said. He has heard of the miracles that Jesus, the Son of God, has performed. And in desperation, he comes to Jesus, despite the fear and grief over the impending death of his daughter, and he puts his faith and trust in him. See, he doesn't ask Jesus to try to heal his daughter. He says, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. It's a foregone conclusion. It's as sure as the sun will come up tomorrow. If you, Jesus, lay your hands on her, she will get well. And Jesus rewards that faith, and he goes off with Jairus. And as, the woman, and as they go, the desperate woman tries a stealth healing by touching Jesus' cloak, as we already saw. Now, I have struggled to understand why the story of this woman is stuck in the middle of Jairus' story. It goes against my need for structure. Pastor Vince has pointed out that these two stories are always told together, so maybe there's a reason. Daryl has said that maybe it was to test Jairus' patience. Remember what the woman did? She told her whole story. Those are the scariest words ever written. I mean, a guy would tell a story like this. Uh, yeah, I was sick and uh, figured if I touched you, I'd get well, and I did, thanks. And that would be the whole story. She told her whole story. <clears throat> it may sound like I'm impatient, but I'm as patient as a second is long. Trish has this hymn playlist for me in the car, and there's this one country singer who sings, Great is Thy Faithfulness. <clears throat> and even though I love that song, my head explodes when she sings it. She drags. I, I can't do it. She drags out each note. <clears throat> and I'm thinking to myself, <clears throat> I can sing that entire song before you get to the third note. <clears throat> I'm not impatient. I'm efficient. So there's Jairus waiting. I'd be like, come on. I need you now. She's already healed. You can come back and talk to her later. But to Jairus' credit, she doesn't interrupt Jesus while he's dealing with the woman. And it's a lesson to me that God has his own timetable, and I need to wait upon him and not expect God to wait upon me. Maybe Jairus' faith needed a boost. 
we, we know he had faith in Jesus because he fell down and worshiped before him. Imagine his relief when Jesus says, lead on. But now he's about to get the worst news that any parent can ever get. Maybe Jairus' faith was strong enough to believe that Jesus could heal, but too weak to believe that he could resurrect someone. Maybe seeing this woman's healing was also for Jairus' benefit. And maybe it's just another example of God's graciousness to weak believers like me. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? You think Jesus impressed these guys? I think they see Jesus as an itinerant rabbi, nothing special. And and notice the lack of compassion in what they say. Daughter's dead. Stop this nonsense. Wake up to the reality of life and death, Jairus. Evidently, they took him aside to say this. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Once we come to trust Jesus, he won't let us go. He knows all the pressures that work on us, all the self-doubts, all the pressures to conform to a non-believing world. He heard the voice of disbelief, and he injected himself into the conversation, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Our God, our creator, the one who controls life and death, gives this man two commands. Stop fearing and believe. And that tells me that fear is a choice. And that belief is also a choice. But believe in what? Abraham believed that his son would be resurrected and returned to him. Martha believed Lazarus would be resurrected. They placed their trust in God and hoped in the resurrection. It was a conscious choice to believe despite what they saw with their eyes. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Yes, there is pain and suffering here. There is futility and corruption. But we eagerly hope for the redemption of our body. We will die. Those we love will die. There is no getting out of life alive. But there is a world to come. Flesh and bone brought back into a world without sin and corruption. And so we trust in Jesus and hope in the resurrection. Well, that's my hope. Is it yours? Give that question some serious thought. You can have that hope if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. There's some elders scattered around here. If you don't have that hope and you want it, speak with them today before you go home. Back in our passage, Jairus ignores the voice of doubt and he continues on with Jesus. Verse 37, and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Not only did Jesus control the wind and the waves, the spiritual world and disease, but Jesus also controlled the crowd. In verse 24, we read that a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. It seems like a carnival atmosphere, but some people have just come up and tried to squash Jairus' hopes. Maybe it was to further protect Jairus' faith from outside hecklers. 
Maybe it was the solemnity of what was about to happen. Maybe it was to keep his glory hidden a little while longer, but he allowed no one except these three disciples. These three were about to see the miracle of resurrection. And these three were permitted to see the transfiguration. And these three were permitted to see his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He allowed these three to see his power, his glory, and his love for his people so that you and I can know of them and have our faith strengthened. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. When I trust Jesus, I must ignore the naysayers. See, to them, the child is dead, gone, never to be again. Another set of streetwise people who know the real score. There's no afterlife. All we have is the present, and when it ends, it ends. But Jesus knows the ultimate score. He uses the word apothnesco to describe the child. That word means away from, as the soul away from the body in death. And indeed, in Luke 8, when Jesus commands the girl to rise, Luke says, and her spirit returned. Her spirit had separated from her body. But Jesus is Lord over all things, including life and death. 41 through 42, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. Jesus commands, and life is restored. And not barely. She was on her deathbed. But whatever caused her death is gone. She rises and starts walking around. She's in the pink of health. You know, <clears throat> we see so many zombie movies today that make a mockery of resurrection. But this girl is not a zombie. Jesus doesn't do anything by half measures. And the parents are immediately astounded, despite Jesus' assurances. So what does that say about the quality of their faith? I mean, I, I believe I write perfect code, and so when it works, I expect that result. I'm not amazed or astounded. My boss may be, but I'm not. So it's one thing to trust Jesus in the abstract, but quite a bit different to put that trust on the line. Matthew 12, 20 quotes Isaiah, A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. So believe. Have faith and trust in Jesus, even in the most terrible of times, and know that he loves his people no matter the quality of their faith. And then Jesus gives two final commands. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said something should be given to her to eat. Jesus raised this girl to life by miraculous power, but he commanded that she be sustained through ordinary means. Think carefully about that. As a fallen man, I'm spiritually dead. And Jesus made me alive by a miraculous supernatural act. 
But the sustainment of my soul comes from the ordinary means of feeding upon the word of God. We have the preaching of the word. We have the Lord's Supper. We have the private reading of the scriptures. We have public and private worship. These are the ordinary means that God uses to sustain his people. And then Jesus commanded that no one speak of this. But in Matthew 9, we read, this news spread throughout all the land. Oops. Did the parents disobey after this miraculous resurrection? I don't think so. You remember there were naysayers laughing at Jesus? He put them out, but it doesn't mean they went away. I think they waited outside in order to laugh some more. I wonder what they thought when they saw the girl walking. Did they see through the eyes of faith? Or did they see through the eyes of cynicism? She wasn't really dead. This was a setup. It's all fake. Well, evidently, some did believe and see through the eyes of faith because the news spread. What kind of eyes do you have? Are they eyes that see pain and suffering everywhere and question how God can be good? Or are they eyes that see a good God, one who rescues people from the kingdom of Satan, one who redeems the evils of this world and wipes away all of our tears? The prophet Habakkuk, had the wrong eyes. He stood on the ramparts, challenging God to explain himself. He essentially asked, how can a good God allow his people to suffer? And God schooled him. Listen to his confession of faith in Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. What causes a man to go from arguing with God over his character to such a deep confession of faith. It's meeting with God in the scriptures. That's where we learn that Jesus will stand by me when I'm at my worst, and that Jesus will stand by me when the chips are down. And so we can trust Jesus, and we can see life through the eyes of faith because Jesus rules and Satan drools. He rules the wind and the waves. He rules over the spiritual realm, over disease and over life and death. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time spent in your word. Thank you that you rule over all things. Thank you that you rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. Thank you for the promise of resurrection and for the world to come. Amen.